The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, my wife likes to make fun of me um, occasionally that she uh, does not see me cry uh, very much. She doesn't maybe see tons of emotions from me, uh, but now we've kind of gotten into this, this rhythm of anytime uh, we watch a, a new movie or a new TV show, if it's got a father and daughter like scene or emphasis or a father and son scene, she's just going to look over at me and ask, like, are you, are you crying yet? Um, because I just, having, having a little girl and a little boy, it just, you know, brings, brings tears to my eyes watching the interaction. Uh, we watched We Bought a Zoo like a week or two ago, and just the, the interaction of this father who's lost his wife with his, with his son and with his daughter just brings all of the emotions, it brings the, the tears to my eyes. And then there's another type of story that, that brings tears to my eyes, and that's courageous acts of self-sacrifice for the sake of of others, whether it's, it's fictional or whether it's real life. So I have some, some fictional and some, some real life stories, um, pictures that we're gonna throw up on the screen. Now a hot take, and this is, this is probably a hot take for this room, my favorite Star Wars movie is Rogue One. Um, Nick, yeah, I've got some, got some love. Jim is probably judging me, that's totally fine. Um, but the whole group sacrifices to get the plans to the Death Star. I think I hope I'm saying that accurately. It's been a little while since I've watched it, but it's 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 my favorite one. It's great to see them uh, essentially commit to their death for the sake of others. And then Star Wars: Return of the Jedi. Darth Vader sacrificing himself in many ways to to save his son Luke. I think about the the actual event of the Titanic. Um, but then also the, the movie, uh, Titanic, where Jack sacrifices himself to, to save Rose. I, I looked at some funny uh, pictures this past week of how they could have both been on that piece of wood. Um, and it was like, there's plenty of room. Not really sure why they both weren't on the wood. But for some reason, they both weren't. Jack sacrifices himself to save Rose. I think about another guy, Alfred Vanderbilt, great-grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt, a man who lived a totally hedonistic lifestyle. And he was actually supposed to be on the Titanic three years earlier, but he changed his plans at the very last minute. But he was on the Lusitania, I hope I'm saying that right, attacked off the coast of Ireland. And because he was a first-class passenger with a lot of wealth, he was given a life jacket. But then he gave up that life jacket to a woman with a baby. And then he got children on lifeboats. He tried to save others when the boat went under waves and he didn't know how to swim. And so that was um, his, his sacrifice for the sake of others. And then one of my favorites is saving Private Ryan. Uh, Captain Miller is going to find Private Ryan with his, his little group of, of troops. And uh, Captain Miller is, is, uh, and Private Ryan, they decide to stay and fight in this final battle. And then uh, Captain Miller is, is shot and he's going to, to die. And so there's this, this great scene of Private Ryan and Captain Miller um, interacting one last time where Miller's closing words, just raw and emotional to Private Ryan, this, this man he gave essentially his life for, he says, earn this, earn this. And then it cuts to a scene, it cuts to pretty much the last scene of the movie, probably 50 years later where Private Ryan is an old man and he's talking to his wife and he says, tell me I have led a good life. 
tell me I'm a good man. It's a powerful scene. I watched it this past week. It brought tears to my eyes. Ryan was sacrificed for and therefore had to earn the sacrifice he was given by living a good life. Captain Miller said, earn this. So Captain Miller and Private Ryan, it's a powerful scene and and we get it, we love it. It brings the emotions, it draws our hearts in. But it's very different than the scene in our passage tonight. It's very different than even the truth of the gospel. So we're gonna see tonight, the the big principle that I want us to, to push into is that Jesus, the crucified king, the crucified king is the name of our our series that we're walking through in these last three chapters of Matthew. Jesus, the crucified king, willingly saves the guilty with his innocent blood. Jesus, the crucified king, willingly saves the guilty with his innocent blood. So climax, spoiler alert, Jesus gives his innocent blood in your place and in my place, but we don't earn that redemption. It's freely given. We turn to Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Romans 3, 26, God is both just, the penalty for sin, death, must be paid. He's just, but he's also the justifier. The Son of God gave himself for us. So our passage is divided up into five parts. The first one is that Jesus is delivered to Pilate. We're going to talk about this more in just a second, but essentially the Jewish leaders have wanted to put Jesus to death, so they're turning him over to Pilate, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute, uh, why that is. And then Jesus is betrayed. We get the conclusion of the Judas saga that, that started in chapter 26 with Judas betraying Jesus. And then Jesus is accused, verses 11 through 14. Jewish leaders testify against Jesus to Pilate with the hopes of seeing him die. The fourth section, Jesus is conspired against, verses 15 through 23. We're going to see this mob mentality that comes, uh, that that rules the proceedings, that rules the the testimony and, and how the process takes place. And then the last three verses, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is scourged and he's delivered over to be crucified and his fate is sealed. And then we're going to get to see in the coming weeks his actual crucifixion. So starting off in that first section, Jesus is delivered to Pilate, uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 27. So we're in Passion Week. We've been in Passion Week ever since chapter 21. Chapter 21, Sunday of Passion Week started. And we've made it only four or five days up to chapter 27. And when it says, when morning came, we finally hit Friday. We've hit the day that Jesus is going to be crucified. This is an important day, obviously, for all Christians, an important day in history. Chapter 26, this erroneous trial has taken place. They've found that Jesus is a blasphemer and that he deserved death. But the problem is that Jewish leaders could not legally execute someone. So they have to pass him over to the Roman authorities who had the ability to execute somebody. So they formalized the verdict of death for Jesus, and then these Jewish leaders schemed together on presenting their case to Pilate, the Roman authority in Jerusalem, the one who is loyal to Caesar. That's his main obligation, but he's also to maintain peace in Jerusalem. 
And then the next verses, verses three through 10, we kind of get this, this Ju- Jesus is betrayed by Judas section uh, sandwiched in to these trials. So Judas finds out that Jesus is going to be put to death. And so he's seized with this regret and he tries to return the 30 pieces of silver. And in verse four, he acknowledges guilt that came by betraying innocent blood. And it's always interesting to see people who, who maybe have a wrong perspective at some point, but they, they make right proclamation. He is right that Jesus has innocent blood. But it falls short of full-fledged repentance for uh, Judas. There's no mark of corrective action and life change. He confesses his sin to the wrong people, hoping to find relief from guilt. He seems to not know what to do about his sin. He throws the money in the temple, he abandons all hope, and he tries to end the guilt and pain by giving up on life through hanging himself. He does not realize that Jesus, the very one that he betrayed, was the one to offer true relief and freedom, but instead he suffers a tragic ending and would experience the judgment of God. Matthew 26, uh, verse 24, the second half of it should be on the screen. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is Jesus speaking. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Judas is going to be judged. Now the Jewish leaders know that this silver that Judas has thrown into the temple is blood money because it's going to lead to Jesus' death. At least that's, that's their hope. But it's ritually unclean money. It cannot be used for religious purposes, so they, want, they buy, decide to buy a field. And there's arguments over synthesizing Judas's death in Matthew 27 and Acts 1. You can, you can go read it later. I think it's Acts 1, verses 18 and 19, and then here in Matthew 27. It feels at first glance, maybe they're saying slightly different things, but it's actually just different perspectives providing different accounts of the same situation. I mean, think about any situation that requires any witnesses, or even if you just ask Casey and me, we spent all day yesterday together, if we were to just recount our day, to just witness our day, we would give you different details, different perspectives, different things would stick out. And so they're just emphasizing different parts in Matthew 27, the the description of Judas' death in Acts 1. So Judas likely died in the field that was purchased with the money that came from his betrayal of Jesus. And all of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. That's the words uh, that Matthew uses in verse 9. He talks about fulfilling the prophet Jeremiah. But then there's a tension because this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. You may have a footnote in your Bible. So Matthew is not unintelligent. He knows his Old Testament and he presumes his readers do too. There's more than two dozen Old Testament uh, prophecies that are fulfilled in Matthew. Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience, so he assumes that they know these prophecies. They know their Old Testament, and he's showing that Jesus has fulfilled them. But he wants us to hear Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, in light of Jeremiah chapter 18 and 19. So Zechariah 11, that's the exact quote that you'll find uh, in verses 9 and 10. In Zechariah 11, God has withdrawn favor from his people. Zechariah shepherds an unfaithful people doomed to be slaughtered. Zechariah breaks his staff, annulling the covenant he made with the people. And then he says that they can still give his wages. 
So he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he throws it into the temple to the potter. And this should trigger us, Judas, throwing 30 pieces of silver into the temple. But Judas is doing this, not destroying um, a staff. He's destroying the Lamb of God, the very Son of God. Matthew also has in mind Jeremiah 18 and then Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 13. The fate of Israel is that they are the pottery of the Lord. And so there's this message of judgment, but also blessing. So Jeremiah 18, people, the people, the Israel are the pottery that God is to work with. And then in Jeremiah 19, if you took time after, after this, we won't go and look at all of them. If you just compare the language that fills Matthew 27, the first part, with Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 13, the language is very similar. There's language about a potter of disaster, death, horror, siege. There's language around the blood of innocence. And that's going to be very important. We're going to land the plane there in just a few minutes. There's renaming of a place in this valley of Hanam. They're talking about the same exact valley. The, the rename in Jeremiah 19 to the valley of slaughter and in Matthew 27 to the field of blood. And there's judgment and burial at the same place by God of Jewish leaders. This has been God's plan for all of time to send Jesus to this point, to even bring Judas to this point. So then verses 11 through 14, we see Jesus is accused. And there's this, this mob mentality that takes place. This is not an orderly, quiet courtroom like we might find here if Jesus was on trial. It's a large public gathering. There's mass hysteria. Likely they're in a courtyard. Jesus is up there with Pilate. There's crowds. There's Jewish leaders. There's clamoring. There's shouting. There's loud noises. There's chanting. And Pilate is even interacting with the crowd to see what they want. And so these, these accusations are brought against Jesus. But then Jesus fulfills more prophecy. Isaiah 42, verse 2. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Pilate queries Jesus about being the king of the Jews. But Jesus neither confirms nor denies. He essentially says, your words, not mine. Jesus fulfills prophecies of not quarreling, not crying aloud, not speaking his voice. Isaiah 53, verse 7, one of the, the greatest prophecies about who Jesus is and came to be. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And you'll notice in this passage, he, he does not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The accusations against Jesus also have, have subtly changed. Pilate's question is different than Caiaphas. So Jesus was put on trial in chapter 26 in front of Jewish leaders, uh, specifically this high priest named Caiaphas. And the, 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 the accusation against him that he was, he was the Christ, the Son of God, chapter 26, verse 63. But then chapter 27, verse 11, the accusation is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders are cunning here. Pilate's concern is about usurping Christ's or Caesar's authority or his own authority. So the language of king would draw his attention, whereas the language of being the Christ, the son of God, would not. 
And there's irony because Jesus is both of these. He is the king of the Jews. He is king over all people. Not in the way that Pilate would fear. Jesus is actually totally innocent of Pilate's fears. He's not come as a political ruler. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for those who are guilty. Verses 15 through 23, Jesus is conspired against. Now, Pilate seems unimpressed with the case against Jesus. He knows that Jesus is popular with the crowds, and therefore the Jewish leaders have developed uh, envy or jealousy of him. So typically, during a Passover, they would uh, bring up some uh, people who have been convicted to um, choose one. The crowds can choose one person to release. So Pilate puts a prisoner convicted of murder, Barabbas, next to Jesus. And Pilate's likely expecting that the crowds are going to choose Jesus. So he's even cautioned by his wife to not have dealings with Jesus. So he, there's almost this desire to have Jesus be released. His wife had a nightmare that seems to convince her of his innocence. The crowd may have been on Jesus' side initially, but the Jewish leaders, remember, were, were in front of this crowd. People are shouting. There's lots of loud clamoring. Jesus is standing up there before Pilate. The Jewish leaders have convinced the crowds Otherwise, So Barabbas is released and they say of Jesus, let him be crucified. And then the last three verses, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is scourged and delivered over to be crucified. Now Pilate is, is baffled. Jesus has, has not seemed to commit a crime that, that Pilate would want to, to um, find him guilty of. But there's no rational discourse. There's only mass hysteria leading to more wild clamoring about Jesus and, and wanting his crucifixion. And there's even a riot beginning. And again, remember, Pilate is supposed to maintain the peace. That's why he's there. So to avoid a bigger riot developing that would threaten his job, Pilate symbolically refuses involvement in the case anymore by washing his hands and declaring he was innocent of shedding Jesus' blood. But Matthew does not whitewash Pilate. Pilate tells the Jews it is their responsibility, therefore abdicating his own responsibility. Pilate then scourges Jesus, a severe Roman penalty that was often fatal. Uh, A scourging was done with a whip that had bone and metal attached to it. And so they would beat Jesus, and he would be on the brink of death after this beating. And then Jesus is delivered over. And then the crowd claims the blood is on them. Clearly, all parties present are responsible for Jesus' death. Judas, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, the crowd. At this point, the disciples have fled. Peter has denied Jesus. Judas has betrayed Jesus. They had expected a conquering king, but instead they're going to get a crucified king. And remember our principle that that we mentioned at the beginning. Jesus, the crucified king, willingly saves the guilty with his innocent blood. Jesus' innocent blood contaminates everyone and everything in this passage. Verse 4, Judas rightly acknowledges Jesus' blood is innocent. 
Verse five, Judas throws the blood money into the heart of the temple, into the house of God. And Jesus is ultimately the better temple that will be killed and then raised up three days later. Verse eight, blood money buys the field of blood, this field that becomes a cemetery, the cemetery for for people who have died, who have had their blood shed and now no longer have blood. Verse 24, Pilate rightly acknowledges the need to be innocent of Jesus's blood, since Jesus is the one who is ultimately innocent. Verse 25, the people claim the guilt for Jesus's blood. It's a a mind-blowing what they say. Um, Verse 25, his blood be on us and on our children. And verse 26, Pilate still participates in making Jesus bleed by having him scourged. Now at this point, for for us, for us in this room, we we were not at this scene. But ultimately, all of us are guilty. All of us have denied Jesus, like Peter in chapter 26. All of us have betrayed him, like Judas, chapter 26 and chapter 27. All of us have accused him, conspired against him, hurt him, and delivered him over to be crucified. Romans 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, makes clear that we are all indicted. We are all guilty before God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 says, All of us have sinned. All of us have taken part in the crucifixion. No one in this room is above that. But Jesus, in his innocence and in his innocence and righteousness, came to save the very people who betray him and delivered him up to be crucified. Verse 25 again, the crowds claim that Jesus' blood is on them. Now, this is true in a literal way as he is crucified as a result of their shouting. They have convinced Pilate to have him crucified. So their blood, Jesus' blood, is on them. But also, it's necessary in order for them to be saved. Jesus' blood being shed is necessary to cover the guilty. And it covers them if they repent and believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Now, Jesus came to save you. He came to save all of us, ones who are guilty before a holy God. And he came to save us with his innocent blood. Ultimately, God became man so that he might be ridiculed and condemned by his very creation, all in order to save his people, to save his creation from their sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus, the one who was perfect, the one who knew no sin, took on sin, became sin, took on our guilt and shame, so then we might have his righteousness, so we might become righteous. 1 John three sixteen. we understand love because Jesus laid down his life for us, and that is what is gonna happen here in these coming verses. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, God has loved us by sending his son to be the sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sins. We know love because Jesus willingly gave himself over to be crucified. He did not defend himself. He submitted to the will of the Father and showed us perfect love. In an event full of irony, Jesus is now being tried, accused, handed over to death by the very people he is going to die for and ultimately judge in the end. 
We're all guilty of shedding Jesus's blood, and yet we all need Jesus's blood to cover us. Jesus, the crucified king, willingly saves the guilty with his innocent blood. In order for this blood to be on us, we must turn to Jesus. He justifies us. He makes us right with God. He sanctifies us. He helps us to grow in holiness. And he will glorify us. He will raise us up on the last day. But we must follow him as Lord, Savior, Prophet, Priest, King, all the other titles that he carries. You cannot earn this new life that he offers Like Captain Miller tells Private Ryan, to earn it, to earn the death that Captain Miller gave for Private Ryan. This death that Jesus will will die here in these next few verses as we study over the next couple weeks, it has been freely given. Would you rest in it and would you find peace in it? If you were a believer in the room, I pray that this would be just a time filled with worship. I was telling my community group a, a few weeks ago that I, that I prayed for this season, being in Matthew 26, 27, and 28, that it would just refresh my heart with the beauty of Jesus, that this innocent man, God, became man and died for us, died in our place. And then if you are, if you are not a believer in the room, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have an intimate ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, I beg that you would turn to him. He is willing and and able to save you from your sins. He has given his innocent blood. He has not defended himself. He's been crucified by you, by me, by us. So turn to him. Have faith that he is Lord and that he is Savior, and he will wash you clean. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you just humbled by the very fact that Jesus is incarnate, that he became man. He's Emmanuel, he's God with us. And that he, living a perfect life, gave us beautiful and wonderful teachings that we have been processing through in Matthew And now we are at the climax, we are at the pinnacle of why he came, not just to teach us to live a good life, but to give his very life, to redeem broken and lost sinners. Like fill this room, like fill these seats. Father, I pray that any of us in this room who are just walking in sin, who are walking in negligence to what you've called us to, who are walking in clear disobedience. Father, I pray that you would convict us tonight, that you would help us to turn from that sin and that we would find beauty and hope in the gospel. That Jesus has given his very life for our sake. He was betrayed by some of his closest. He was denied by some of his closest. And Father, we confess that in so many ways, we deny, we betray, we choose so many other things other than Jesus. Daily, hour by hour, minute by minute. Father, I pray that you would refresh us tonight with the beauty of the gospel. 
Father, we are there with these crowds saying, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. The blood of Jesus is on us. Each and every one of us. We are all sinners. And even one sin, one sin that we've committed puts Jesus on the cross. And Jesus willingly did it, paid the price for us. And Father, pray that we would find great hope and joy in that. And let us turn to you by faith and and with repentance. And we ask that the Spirit would change our hearts and help us to worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.